Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahoski. Well, welcome to episode number 20 already. My gosh, we've recorded 20 episodes. Uh, episode 20 is entitled Kierkegaard and the Art of Indirect Communication with Dr. Aaron Simmons, who I'm uh, pleased to introduce to you now. Dr. Aaron Simmons is a professor of philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He has a PhD in philosophy, a few master's degrees, one in humanities, one in philosophy. He specializes in postmodern philosophy of religion and political philosophy and primarily engages in debates about the possibilities of determinate religious belief and practice in a deconstructive context. So yes, folks, postmodernism comes up a lot today, and I think you're going to be surprised to hear what you hear. What a gracious guest Aaron was. We talked a lot about myth, a lot about Kierkegaard, different forms of communication, the relationship to myth and coming to belief and what faith is and humility. And yes, some other things came up too that I think you might find interesting, like progressive Christianity briefly, open theism, free will. These subjects are going to be a subject for our next conversation with Dr. Simmons. But uh, while you might find some significant disagreement there with him, I think there's much to appreciate and loud today. Uh, and I know I learned a lot and agreed with most of what he was saying and really think it's important that we hear what he has to say about the over-importance that we uh, have, have given you know, to logos and propositional apologetics. that we've, we've highlighted it so much and made it so overly important that it eclipses myth and uh, the existential life of a Christian. I think that's a very valuable message that we can learn a lot from uh, today's interview. So I'm geeking out. I had a great time. And Dr. Simmons is now a new friend, so I'm pleased to know him. Grateful to Dr. Matthew Sims, who is a good friend I teach alongside um, here at St. Petersburg College. Uh, we teach humanities together. We're good friends. And he recommended that I reach out to his friend, Dr. Aaron Simmons. Apparently, they grew up together. They went to school together at one point. And so, uh, great. Uh, it was really great to meet him, have him on the show. Announcements. Um, we are now accepting donations for Mythic Mission. Please go to the landing page for Mythic Mission and consider giving to us. We need new equipment. And uh, we, you know, we incur a lot of costs trying to uh, keep the show going. Uh, we would appreciate your donations if you're interested in supporting this lay ministry that we have. Uh, we have tons of great guests still coming on. We're giving all of this to you for free. So we would really love to continue to be able to do that. And uh, the cost that it's beginning to incur, if you want to support our min uh, ministry here at Mythic Mission, there's a way to do that, I think, one time or monthly. We would greatly appreciate your support. Uh, we also have plans, if we get enough people, to start diverting uh, most of those funds to Make-A-Wish Foundation, which there's a story behind this uh, to tell another time. But um, very, very uh, hopeful that we can uh, drum up some money for that cause. So that's uh, primarily the, the big announcement. Um, I'm not monetizing the podcast yet in the sense that you'll get exclusive episodes if you, you know, subscribe, but um, you know, I might have to do that in the future. I'm hoping to keep it free. That's where my heart is, but I'm uh, hoping that some out there will consider giving to help keep us going. We would really appreciate your support. That being said, uh, look forward to some really spectacular shows on the horizon. On the 14th of May, just in a few days, I have Donald Robertson, a psychologist and a scholar of Stoicism, coming on to talk about the show, uh, uh, on the show about Stoicism and Christianity with me. And then on the 4th of June, Dr. Brad Berger to talk about Tolkien and Middle Earth. 
later in July, Mary Jo Sharp to uh, to talk about uh, apologetics and hopefully, um, you know, engaging the imagination among other things to round out the summer. These are some really great guests through July now I'm booked and I'm going on at the end of May on the Tolkien Road podcast to talk about my book. So to stay current with everything I'm doing through my podcast and also what I'm doing through others' podcasts about my book, please follow my website. There's a place to sign up on the website that is in the podcast description. God bless. Thank you for your support. Enjoy episode number 20 with Dr. Aaron Simmons. Thank you for listening. You're hosting them and glad that lots of other people are, are paying attention. So, yes, let me start. Um, with my faith and we'll uh, get to the academic side. I was born and raised a Pentecostal Christian. Uh, I still identify as Pentecostal. Um, my grandfather, uh, Ernie T. Height, was a Pentecostal pastor. I'm fourth generation uh, Pentecostal, which traces our roots you know, pretty well back to the beginning of, of Pentecostalism in America. And that tradition is something that I think has influenced me in all sorts of subtle ways. Um, I should make clear just for an audience uh, who I, I'm guessing is Christian and thinks a lot about these identities, um, mm -hmm. I do no longer identify as an evangelical, um, precisely because I think the, the tragedy that has happened to white evangelicalism over the last um, you know, 20 or 30 years, but especially the last four, um, I think it's important for those of us that were raised in that community um, who still identify with much theologically in that community to stand against what it uh, now looks like. Um, so I am a Pentecostal, still attend an Assemblies of God Church uh, here in Greenville, South Carolina. And my whole life, uh, I never understood what Mark Knoll refers to as, you know, Pentecostalism as one of the great anti-intellectual movements in American religiosity. Mm. For me, it was always deeply intellectual, but I've come to realize the reason for that was less the tradition and more my family. So mm. both of my parents are academics. My dad's an art professor. My mom was an education professor. Cool. And so I grew up uh, sitting at my grandfather's table Sunday afternoons after church and, you know, him talking about the Greek translation of some term or, you know, calling the pastor often, you know, saying, <laughs> hey, I, I'm not quite sure that your account of uh, atonement was right this morning, you know. Mm. So I grew up where the life of the mind and the life of faith were never strongly detached. They, they mm -hmm. were deeply integrated. Mm -hmm. And the Pentecostal side of that, which I know uh, we won't dive too deep into these weeds, but the Pentecostal side um, <laughs> gave me a deep sense of what we might say uh, the affectivity or the pathos side of, of religious life. Mm -hmm. So I care a lot about the idea that we're more than just minds, you know, and more mm -hmm. than just, you know, believers, we might say. Uh, and in fact, I tend to think that religious life is mistakenly referred to as, you know, being a believer. Mm -hmm. Well, we're all believers. It's just sure. a matter of what is it you hold to be the case, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Instead, I, I think a lot about religious life as a matter of uh, an embodied practice, a, mm. a mode of existing. Um, you know, since we're going to talk about mythos in a while, you know, it's not just mythos and logos, right? No. The pathos and the ethos are yep. deeply uh, central. Yes. And so, <clears throat> you know, teethed on the red back hymnal, as they say, uh, grew up in church. And then when I went to college, went to Lee University, a, a Church of God school, which is the denomination in which I was raised. 
I, I took a philosophy course there, um, taught by a theologian, Terry Cross, an amazing Pentecostal theologian, um, written several books on Karl Barth and others. And I remember going to him after, uh, I don't know, uh, just a few classes and was like, Dr. Cross, this is amazing. I feel like I've kind of finally found my stride. This is what I think I want to do. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have a philosophy major? Mm-hmm. Uh, and his response was, oh my goodness. Well, because the board of directors would never allow us to make so many atheists. And he chuckled. <laughs> you know. uh, and of course, he was being facetious. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of so often in um, broadly speaking, you know, conservative Christian circles, philosophy mm-hmm. is perceived as this obstacle, this challenge. And that was where I ran into the Mark Knoll view, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Hey, we're, we're, yes, let's go to college. Let's have mm. you know, schools. Let's have evangelical college. But don't do philosophy because you might read Nietzsche, right? Or oh, you might God start forbid. thinking, you know, that Marx made some sense or mm. whatever. And so mm-hmm. that was a kind of weird moment for me. And I thought, hmm, you don't have to put a pin here and, and think a little bit about how philosophy works in relation to my faith. Sure. So I ended up getting a degree in history, went on to Florida State University because, to be honest, I love the Seminoles and figured I couldn't really be a fan unless I was an alum. So I went there to watch football. My sister will love that. Yeah. Well, it, it's true. They, they, you know, clearly the most religious thing I've ever done uh, is be there for their national championship. Oh yeah. Wow. And it, it was great. And while I was there, I got a degree in humanities, mm-hmm. um, but started again, hitting more of these philosophy courses and, and mm-hmm. doing more in, you know, philosophical theology, though I am not a theologian. Mm-hmm. And as a result of doing that work, I decided, wow, um, I, I need to do this more systematically, do it more intentionally. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a uh, course on Kierkegaard that really kind of sucked me in. And interestingly, it wasn't in philosophy, it was in English. Um, so so yeah. we're going to talk about the narrative side of things. Yeah. It yeah. was a class on romantic irony. Oh, how uh, cool. Right. And we read, yeah. uh, you know, Lord Byron and mm-hmm. uh, Jane Austen and Kierkegaard. And mm. while I was reading it, I remember thinking something about this resonates with what that pathos ethos side of my own experience looks like mm-hmm. not a Pentecostal yeah uh, to, to refer to him as that but he certainly had what I would describe as a pneumatological you know sense right mm-hmm. oh yeah and that kind of led me to say well I want to do more of this and so I went to Vanderbilt got a PhD in philosophy um, and specialized in the intersection of political philosophy and philosophy of religion thought a lot about the postmodern space. Um, and the reason was, again, if we think of postmodernism not as a particular set of beliefs, but instead as an approach to believing mm-hmm. that encourages epistemic humility, encourages epistemic charity, mm-hmm. suddenly that embodied affective, perspectival, experiential side of my own religious existence now had an epistemological frame sure. that just named what I had already lived into, right? Yeah, yeah. So that, um, you know, kind of formed my early thinking. Uh, wow. Graduated from Vanderbilt, taught at a variety of different schools. I'm now at Furman. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, was very blessed finally to uh, be promoted to full professor. And so uh, awesome. I, can, I can report to those who are still on that uh, very bizarre, binted, shaky ladder. Um, mm. It, it, yeah. it is nice because there's a sense of um, tenure lets you breathe out. It's almost mm. like you've been holding your breath for a very long time. You get tenure. I can imagine. You out. 
yeah. when you get promoted to full professor, you can almost breathe in again. You know, it's <laughs> like, oh, now I can start running. Now I yeah. can do things that, you know, I really feel strongly about. That's great. Uh, and so in some ways, it, it, it coincided directly with the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, I think it allowed me to sort of find my, um, my voice a little bit differently. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I published a lot, written a lot of books, a lot of articles, um, but very technical stuff. And yeah. the advent yeah. of COVID and getting promoted to full allowed me to think about, well, what are the voices that I turn to in times of crisis? Yeah. And they were Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer and Simone Weil, mm. Martin Luther King. And, and then I realized, oh my good Lord, every one of them died younger than me. Yeah. Right. And wow. When you yeah. realize that there's a kind of shaky moment where you're like, wow. <laughs> so I'm older than all of them. And yeah. I'm turning to them to tell me how to be an adult, how to live yeah. through human crisis. Very profound. And so this year I've been trying hard to uh, write more, speak more, engage more mm -hmm. about what it looks like to um, be a, a reflective, intentional person, mm. also a person of faith, but also yep. you know, to do this in responsible, deliberative, democratic ways, which yes. I think, unfortunately, uh, very few people are doing well right now. So. No, I, I agree. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in the political side of what you do. Uh, we'll have to maybe have you back on the show to talk about uh, political yeah. philosophy. I know that wasn't the, uh, the aim for today, but oh. yeah, very fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that with us. There's a there's a lot there that I wanted to respond to, but I think we're going to get to it. You know, you had me thinking that uh, in my little knowledge of Kierkegaard, I, I see him as kind of a one of the founding fathers like Nietzsche of at least um, religious. Well, I mean, for Nietzsche, it would probably be secular existentialism, but religious existentialism. You then, you know, fast forward to the uh, post-World War II era. You have you know Sartre and, uh, and the others, uh, Camus. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, mid 20th century, uh, you have postmodern philosophy, which I think for a lot of my audience, they're going to equate, you know, it's with the devil. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's it's uh, yes, there's there's some problems with it. I think I'm, fa I'm familiar with that objection. Yes, I was going to I was going to say, well, <laughs> maybe we'll get into that. I think I think for me, especially, I think for maybe for you, too, I think get your perspective is that mm -hmm. there's a difference in, in evaluating and respecting perspectives and subjectivity as a part of the experience, the existential experience, you might say, yeah. in religion. I think a lot of evangelicals overlook that existential element. Kierkegaard certainly did not. That was what he evaluated was the problem with the Church of Denmark, as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, and that gets into capability. We'll get get to that. Um, you know, but I think. Um, I guess where I was going with this is basically that uh, we, we need to to listen to these voices and not just write it off as, well, they believe that truth is relative. Well, there's much more to that. And I think there's the difference is that, you know, you have some in postmodern philosophy who acknowledge the validity of the perspective and then others that say the perspective is everything. And I think there might be some, you know, uh, like a spectrum of postmodern philosophy, as I understand it. I don't think all postmodernists see truth as purely relative. And I think that's the one thing evangelicals uh you know beeline to when they hear that word yeah so, no i think that's right yeah it, it, it's it's complicated though so mm. i mean as is the case in all philosophy yeah. a lot depends on what we mean by the terms we use absolutely um so i i would say uh you know relative is one of those um phrase terms phrases truth is relative that gets mm. deployed in ways that sometimes um, say something important, mm -hmm. but miss say what's being said. So yeah. yep, I hear people you. get very nervous about truth being relative. I, I get it. What they're worried about um, is, well, then nothing matters. It's a mm -hmm. slide to a kind of nihilism, a 
um, a radical situationalist ethics such that there sure. are no longer moral facts, right? right. So right. I, I get the worry. Um, the problem is the claim truth is relative is at some level necessarily true for embodied beings. Yes, <laughs> so th absolutely. there is no way that truth couldn't be relative to a context of meaning making. Precisely. So Precisely. I, I would say, of course, truth is relative. That's why it matters. Right. Right. And it so has to be. Yeah. It has to be relative. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that this is a denial of what's sometimes called metaphysical realism, that there right. is some mind independent state of affairs. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. it's a suggestion of is, but we should be really cautious. Mm. Anytime we think that we have access to that mind independent state of affairs, outside of our embodied experience yes because of course yes. one might ask well who is it that knows that then right yeah. it wouldn't be me because right. the only me that i can make sense of as a knower mm. is the body that i perform in a historical situation how would because i know that i know I, it, it becomes super yeah. tricky so for yeah. me postmodernism is that epistemic reminder mm -hmm. um, it's not a rejection of the metaphysical realism it's right a recognition that even if that's true, even if sure. there is an objective state of affairs, I probably can't engage that state of affairs except mm. relative to my context and frame of reference. Yeah, right. let's. Um, I'm going to back up for some of our audience. Let me um, point out, you know, back in the sixth century BC, and I know Aaron will know this. You've got Parmenides and Heraclitus, you know, and among the other things, and it's often not pointed out that Heraclitus, aside from saying you never step into the same river twice, being the father of what we call sometimes relativism, and some say postmodernism, you know, I've, I've seen it in some books. He also said that there is underlying all this, the logos, right? And so he didn't deny permanence entirely. On the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, being is the only thing that exists uh, and changes an illusion. And that's Parmenides, if I have it right. And, and I think that Plato tried to resolve that uh, paradox or rather actually contradiction when you set it up that way. Uh, but I think what we're getting at here is that there is an inherent paradox, two things that uh, appear to contradict, but don't. It's a, a, a very uh, tense sort of situation we find ourselves in as embodied, rational and imaginative beings. Truth has to be relative and or subjective is the word I kind of prefer. Uh, relative is good though when we understand it correctly because you know we're the knowers. Uh, on the other hand, metaphysically, so that's epistemology. For those of you that don't know, epistemology is how we know what we know, among other things. Metaphysics is the study of what is real or possible, or true, like ontology, which is another right. uh, word for the same thing. Metaphysically, I think your understanding of postmodernism is that there is objective truth, but we can't get outside ourselves to know this because we're embodied knowers. And this comes down to, and we'll get into this with some of the questions, um, you know, the dangers of claiming that we can know with the knower, and now I kind of sound like I'm a Hindu from the Upanishads, <laughs> uh, you know, who can see with the seer who does the seeing is one of the lines there I always remember. Um, but the right. question of revelation as well. So a lot of Christians will say, well, wait, you're right, we can't know that truth, but God can reveal it to us. And so I want to get your take on that at some point. Um, but let's... The, um, the only qualification ahead, yeah. I'd add there, just as a little footnote, Please. is um, I don't think postmodernism affirms that there is a metaphysical objectivity. Okay. It doesn't deny it. Uh, so 
the idea is, again, you, you couldn't know that you knew it was the case. And this is where, for me, what it does is invites a kind of epistemic risk, right? Sure. An existential yeah. risk. We have to take ourselves up committed to something as significant. The mm. way I define faith is simply mm. risk with direction. Yeah. So hmm. it's important then to see the 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 account of postmodernism as this kind mm. of radical nihilism, relativism, you know, yeah. skepticism, etc. I, I tend to think that that's rarely presented by the actual people writing the books on postmodernism. Yeah. Yeah. And it's normally presented by the readers of those books yes. um, who may not be reading them charitably, right? Sure. So yeah. even someone like Richard Rorty, perhaps the um, easiest case to yeah. make about there is just nothing, it's all just language games, it's all just play. Right. Even Rorty doesn't think that morality is fiction. Mm. He just thinks that it's a product of social functioning. Right. So it is still mind independent in the sense of not dependent on my mind mm. but it's not mind independent as such right mm. but he wouldn't say that the tree and the you know bird don't have separate existence from mine sure he would yeah. say but what does it mean to refer to them as tree and bird well that's right. already referenced back to a social meaning space right a language yeah where we now say, oh, look, a bird in a tree. We, yeah. we are placing, we're relating, we're understanding them because of our embodied perspective. Yeah, so, that just, yeah. you know, go ahead. No, no, no. it just no, reminded so, me so of a- the, the most stringently um, dangerous postmodernist to the kind of Christian critique, mm. I, I think really still doesn't hold the view that they are often said to hold. Sure, I I agree, and I think there are some things there that um, I would I would probably want to push back on, not uh, in an aggressive way, of course, but just in a I want to know more. But yeah. I want to I want to get to some of our questions today because I know Let's our audience it. is going to you really like it. But I, I'm you know the, the philosopher in me just wants to stay here. <laughs> it just reminded me of a uh, a quote, and I, I know it's um, tied up in the Humphrey Carpenter biography of Tolkien, and I, I you know having written a book on Tolkien can't track mm -hmm. down the quote now, but. Um, in their conversation in 1931, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien uh, spoke about truth and speech. Yep. And it just reminded me that this sounds a little bit like something that uh, Tolkien pointed out, that speech is invention about objects and ideas, and myth is invention about truth. And this is, yeah. this is definitely a doozy um, of philosophy. Like yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Now, I know that Tolkien, being a Catholic, was a big believer in objective truth, but he did understand that, you know, speech is something we've invented to, to label objects that are independent of us. And I would, I would think, and I, I haven't dived into this aspect of his thought enough, but that he would agree that there's some risk involved. And I like the epistemic risk. And, uh, you know, we think of the Greek word for trust, um, which is pistis, I think is one of the words for tr to trust in. And this brings us back to Kierkegaard with his uh, idea of the leap of faith, which gets right. badly caricaturized today as well, yeah. um, is that what Christians, I don't think, often realize is that there is a risk involved, and it is a humble risk that we have to say, well, I'm not, I'm not the object of, of, of knowledge. I haven't created this. I'm dependent and contingent on something bigger than myself, hence the humility. And, um, and this is where revelation comes in. So, of course, this gets us into our questions. So that's how I'm tying it all back. Uh, and the Tolkien part about myth, I think, is interesting. Yeah. So 
how do you understand? I could tell you briefly, and it is just briefly, mythos to me, uh, mythos, logos, you know, were ancient concepts that prior to Plato, my understanding uh, is that they almost meant the same thing, but they were, of course, still different that myth is sort of an imaginative, um, metaphorical way of speaking about reality. Logos is more of a uh, direct, rational way of looking at reality and speaking about reality. Um, you know, scholars today like Alistair E. McGrath, who I think who has also worked in postmodern philosophy and Christianity, uh, he, he defines and understands mythos as a narrated worldview, which I know is also a big word. Uh, it comes from the German word, uh, which I'm going to butcher. I'll let you do it. Um, you know, during Kierkegaard's time, so worldview is a relatively new term. So this idea of mythos as narrated worldview, uh, I don't know what you what you think about that. If you want to talk a little yeah. bit about myth and the role in uh, myth plays in belief, yeah, clarify that for us, maybe. Well, I, I don't know if I'll clarify, um, <laughs> but uh, talk about it. <laughs> I, I I at least have some thoughts. So, yeah, the, the distinction between mythos and logos. Um, you know, I'm not a classicist, but I think it's an important distinction when we add to it um, the idea of pathos. So I think mm. that in order to think about mythos and logos, we have to also think about pathos. And so if you, if you bring the three together, what I think it does is it speaks to the fact that we are relational beings at our core. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, ultimately what the need for these different words means, right? Which, of course, sure. that then invites a space in which we live, which would be the addition of ethos. Right. But let's stick yeah. with the three. So mythos, narrate, a narrated worldview, I think, is a great way to think about it. Okay. Um, I tend to uh, be ambivalent about worldview, the, the German Weltanschauung. Um, yeah. I've, I've written a lot about Weltanschauung uh, actually traced the development of the idea as it uh, played out in Heidegger and Karl Jaspers and others in early 20th century German thought. Cool. Um, the, the idea of it, I think, is great if we mean by it the kind of thing we get in Tolkien, mm -hmm. which is a way <laughs> of understanding that coherence matters. Mm -hmm. to the lives that are told not just in story but as story yes so it's not just that there is this logos this rational state of affairs this fact of the matter that can be articulated in propositional form right mm -hmm. x is p mm -hmm. instead um X is P is something that only again makes sense internal to a way of navigating the world that includes X's and yes. can be described in P ways, right? Yes. So yeah. it, it's, it's a matter of recognizing that truth is not simply a state of affairs that I tell. Yes. Truth is at some level the telling. Okay. It, it, it's the, inha I, I inhabit this. Right. Yes. And that's yes. where I think the coherence is a lived thing. So mm -hmm. it's the narrative itself, the telling mm -hmm. is the mm -hmm. mythos. The what that I'm trying to tell is um, able then to be expressed alternatively as mm -hmm. logos. Okay. Right? As yep. you know, a, a propositionally articulate, you know, account. statements. Yeah. Yeah. 
But what the logos often misses is what I would describe as the pathos, the absolutely affective felt yep. dimension. Absolutely. So let me, uh, yeah. can I interject? I, I don't want to uh, be very brief because uh, you're on a roll. So this uh, might or may, may or may not be familiar with some of my listeners, but there's uh, two prevailing theories of, of truth that we often hear about in philosophical circles today. Coherence theory of truth, which I think Kierkegaard and Nietzsche even talked a little bit about among uh, later postmodern philosophers. And then there's the correspondence theory, which goes all the way back to Aristotle and throughout the Middle Ages. Um, isn't it true, though, that uh, even though, uh, and I agree with your understanding of mythos as kind of this lived experience and that it's a communal story that we tell that we live within mm -hmm. uh, and it must cohere, um, doesn't the coherence theory assume the correspondence theory is that we assume that it has some bearing on reality outside of us? So aren't they, uh, they're not uh, mutually exclusive or well, what do you think? Well, it, it depends if we're thinking about them at the level of theories of truth. Right, yeah. or at the level of lived practice. Uh -huh. um, so as a professional philosopher, mm -hmm. I would say, well, no, the, you know, there, there's usually three theories, the coherence, which says mm -hmm. X is true if and only if X coheres with states of affairs that are held to be the case, right? So sure. it's a matter of um, our beliefs all hold together in a way that allows us to then navigate the world mm -hmm. without tension. Right, right. Um, so it's a it's not a relationship beyond belief. It's mm -hmm. a relationship of belief to belief. Got it. The the metaphor is a raft, right? That you a raft holds together almost by magic. You take mm -hmm. some logs and some rope, and somehow it all holds together. And even if you have one of the knots come untangled or one of the logs fall out, the rest of it can usually, if it's done well, can mm. stay together. Right? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. The way <clears throat> that that coherence works, um, yeah, is distinguished from correspondence, which is sometimes um, presented as the idea that you've got a state of affairs and you have language and, and the, the language is where belief happens and we're trying mm. to hinge these together. So uh, X, mm. co X is true if and only if X coheres with reality. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The um, tricky thing about this, of course, is we're not quite sure, and no one really has a good answer for this, what, co co um, what correspondence would mean, right? Mm -hmm. So if X is true if and only if X corresponds with reality, well, in what way? Is exactly. it an accurate description? Is it... Um, actually a reflection of? Is it an identity statement, right? These How are complicated philosophical debates. I know. And, yep. and that's where you get the third theory, which is yes. the pragmatic theory of truth, right. Right. which says X is true if and only if X is useful. It works, yeah. Right? And so oh. it's not the case that these are necessarily at odds mm -hmm. in practice, but they are definitely at odds as theories. Theories, right? yeah. So yeah. they hold very different claims you know, pragmatism is purely a matter of a, a social function mm -hmm. of belief. Coherence is purely a matter of the relationship of beliefs to beliefs. And mm -hmm. correspondence is a relationship of beliefs to something called reality. Well, let's, let's interject, right? Let me interject there and say, uh, I did some research into this and uh, did a lot of the language games research and understanding mm -hmm. uh, the relationship between language and myth and truth and reality. And these can be very confusing concepts to navigate. We won't get into all of it right now, but 
One thing um, that I came across frequently um, and my research into parables, especially as a kind of mythos, mm -hmm. is that no language, we can even just split it as the mythos logos dichotomy, provides direct access to reality. Right. And this is right. something that it goes back to the epistemic humility and to revelation. And so for Christians who are concerned that, you know, it sounds like we're kind of setting up, uh, you know, radical kind of skepticism or even cynicism, I don't think that's the direction we're going in. Mm -mm. I think we're supposed to be brought to our knees here to say, correspondence, coherence, pragmatic theory, whatever, or some hybrid of the two or three, uh, I can't know uh, if I really, I, I don't know, you know, that there's an ultimate risk involved, um, which gets into trust and faith yeah. and uh, right. to revelation. And so that's going to come up when we talk about Kierkegaard, because I'd love for, we haven't really talked about any modern philosophers, uh, especially from the romantic period in uh, or on this podcast. So uh, we'll, we'll weave in some more on myth. That was really excellent stuff. Thank you so much. Um, I'm geeking out here. So I yeah. love it. Uh, you know, I, I, I love this stuff. This is what the podcast is all about. So, I mean, this is mythic mission. Yeah. Well, I, I would just say the one yeah. um, thing about worldview, because mm -hmm. I was giving the, the good side of it, yes. the bad version of worldview. Um, and I think that uh, this has happened primarily um, since about the 1960s. Um, mm -hmm within Christian, Amer primarily American Christian culture, but we could say sort of broader, um, you know, European American Christian culture is worldview has been deployed as a particular logos mm -hmm. that then is competing against other logos mm -hmm. in a sort of zero sum game of dominance, yes. right? Yeah, um, that's th this underwrites, and I know you have some questions you want to ask about apologetics, yeah. this underwrites the contemporary, what I call apologetics, Inc., right? Yeah. This sort of almost corporatized version mm -hmm. of, in my opinion, mediocre philosophy deployed for audiences that already think that domination is the goal. Um, so fair. this warrior ethos wow. of mediocre thinking yeah. gets deployed um, in ways that actually try to minimize mm. the existential risk that has always defined, and here I'll sound confessional, always <laughs> defined what it looks like to be standing on the road to Golgotha because mm. Jesus might turn and, you know, you have to carry the cross. So the idea of acting like, wow. no, the goal of Christian thinking is to stand on top of the hill triumphant patting your foot that's no. the way worldview thinking tends to get deployed too often yes. not exclusively no, but often it does you know and this like so for example in, in christian colleges where they'll do things like worldview seminars right yes. i want nothing to do with that because yeah. what it's doing is showing you why christianity beats the other guys i want to no truck I, i'm out with that right yeah but i want to talk about that in a minute go ahead yeah different ways of navigating the felt pathos, mm. logical logos, and spoken, lived, told mythos. Sure. Now we're talking about the human condition. Yes. And the fact that you could risk yourself in a variety of directions. Yes. So for me, trust is the ground for hope. Mm -hmm. But we, so I rarely talk about Christian knowing. I yeah. talk about a trusted hope. So yeah, I am no. invested in, I that's fair. I am invested in the hope mm. that God is like Christ. 
Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's, and I don't say that I could hear some of your audience say, whoa, whoa, you you didn't say God is Christ. Right. I'm just saying the canonic example of Christ is for me as a Christian, Mm -hmm. the maximal revelation of who God is. Right. Well, yeah. That's a hope for me, not a knowledge claim in the sense of logos attaching to a you know state of affairs yes it's the state of affairs that i want to be true and i am living my whole life and raising my son in orientation to right i think that it was beautifully yeah. said i uh amen brother i think i think here we need to push back on a couple of concerns that some of the skeptics or or you know evangelicals in the audience might have here uh, number one, this idea of, you know, you, you think, uh, of course, some might be concerned if you didn't say God is Christ. Right. I think we need to remind ourselves that Jesus asked us to trust who he was and, and what he was doing. And what he was doing is what the Father was doing in him. Right. Right. And so, um, again, back to epistemic humility, we trust that this is God's revelation to us yep. that he appeared in the second person of the Trinity right. and sent the helper. We have Father, Son, and Spirit, a triune faith. Uh, so I think. I'm Pentecostal, all in on the Trinity, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's important that we understand that we can't absolutely know this except on God's revelation. I think that's what you're trying to say. And it's more of a... But but I would would just begin change the language. It's not that I can't know it except via revelation. It's because of the revelation, Mm. I am invested in that revelation as true. Yeah, that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. it's not that I know that Jesus is God. Right. It's I hope that the the story we get of Jesus in scripture, I okay. hope that this is in fact the truth that I am living into. And that is very precise language. So I know, again, some people are going to disagree with this. I, I've got a few people in mind who are saying, whoa, he can't say I know. All right. Well, I, I think I think this is a fair way of putting it. And uh, once you peel back what you're saying, I think you're saying something that that the others will agree with so if i'm speaking um, in a church yeah the way that we've been apostles talk about it is we use the phrase i know that i know that i know (laughs) and this is important because Uh i know that that's just access internalism for we philosophers that just means i have access to the reasons that actually allow me to hold something as true right right I know that I know that I know. Jamie Smith does a great job uh, in a book where he talks about this is not a epistemic statement of certainty. Right. It's a repeated investment that says, here is where I will ground myself. And I mm. recognize that there are other reasonable places that I could stand. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. I, I'm doing this on purpose. Right. And I recognize that there are, again, if we want to use worldview language, Mm. There are other worldviews that are equally coherent, sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. That are equally plausible, yeah. And maybe even more ethically compelling in some ways, in given some ways. the way that Christianity often, again, has been deployed recently. Sure. Yes. So, what does it mean to say, you know, here is where I'm at? Mm. I think the best way to describe this is Martin Luther famously says, here I stand, I can do no other. Mm-hmm. That's that, that for me, that's the domination. I can do no other because nothing else gets it right. Yeah. Yeah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, oh no, <laughs> I, I could always do otherwise. Mm. That's the risk that wow. for me mm. is the reason mythos matters. Yes. It's because 
I'm living the story of mm. what it would mean for Christ to be the second person of the Trinity revealed mm. in a canonic manifestation of divine love. Yeah, this is a very compelling way of thinking and one that's personally close to me because uh, hence the podcast. But uh, going back to the point about the, the seminars, the, the, the talks, the Christian colleges with the worldview training, I think, and I don't have them by name here, but there are some that appreciate the mythos side of things. However, most of them, and even recently, those, um, and I'm not going to name names here, those yeah. apologists who do these rallies and such at universities, I yeah. think are overlooking the, the idea of Kierkegaard's capability. You know, uh, they're overlooking oh, yeah. ethos and pathos. They're overlooking mythos by a long shot. And it's all logos all the time. And, and I, I think it was Brian Godawa who wrote a book about cinema, Hollywood, and the Christian um, you know, way and kind of prizing or at least valuing image as, as much as we um, value, uh, you know, proposition. And it, it was there that I read his story is kind of like my own is that he burned out on logos. It, it is kind of like, let me forgive the crude language, but it's like a pissing contest. Let's see oh, who yeah. can, and it is sometimes in some of the ones that I've seen, uh, let's see who can outprove somebody else. And, and there's no humility. There's only the, uh, you know, certainty that, everything outside of Christianity is darkness and evil and satanic. Everything inside is light and you either it's all or nothing. And I think this misses so much and it certainly is going, it's going way over the heads of people who, who care about their day-to-day -day life and their existential well, lived existence. So it's, it's also a, a over, really yeah. boring freaking movie, right? Well, think yeah, about it. It is. Like what movie yeah. do we enjoy where everything is crystal clear, you know, <laughs> white and black, the light and dark and the, Sure. What an awful, awful film. Yeah. The reason that Lord of the Rings was good, I think, both, especially as books, but also as film, Got my attention. is <laughs> none of the characters, none of them are pure, right? Mm. All of them have to be complicated, and that's why it draws us along for nine and a half hours filmically, right? Yeah, you know, wow, I yeah. Mean, even Sauron, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it's It's... It's just strange where, you know, the, the, the bad wizard was mm. the good wizard yep. and the good wizard becomes the great wizard sort of, but yet yeah. he's got four right and yeah. the the great hero struggles with temptation to the point where he actually fails mm -hmm. and it requires someone else who's relationally invested in him to make sure that he doesn't give in to the failure, right? Like the accountability. The, the whole idea is we don't actually live in a world where certainty and clear lines, you know, it, all, all the, the churches, I, I actually for a while was doing some research on church faith statements and the way mm. that we describe ourselves. So what's the mythos we tell, mm -hmm. right, yeah, in exactly. our, our faith statements? Yep. And it's fascinating because the words like non-negotiable mm. get deployed a lot which is a really interesting term. Now, if we mean it politically, perfectly legitimate. Sure. Here, here is a thing that we as a social group have decided will be not something that we're going to allow conversation because we actually see it as undermining why we are here. Mm -hmm. So if we are a Florida State University fan club, mm. what we're not going to entertain is why we really should love the Gators more, right? That's a non-negotiable. Sure, yeah. But notice that's uh, a social uh, definition of who uh, we are. Yes. But when we start saying 
here are non-negotiables about the very divine mystery that we are formed in an attempt to relationally live into. Mm -hmm. What we've done is eliminated the possibility of taking truth seriously as it's actually presented in scripture. A mm -hmm. question I ask often in churches, why is it the case that we have four gospels? Mm. Well, option one, if it's a logos reading, right? Mm. And again, the majority of apologetics Inc., which I should make very clear in case there are, are friends of mine listening, <laughs> apologetics as a professional philosophical discourse, that stuff's baller. Like that, mm. that's intense and awesome and compelling. I'm talking about the kind of popularized stuff, right? The rally yeah. sort of that, that I, I, I got no interest in. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. So I don't want to say people who do professional apologetics are mediocre. No, no. Right? They, they're some no. of the best thinkers in the game. Agreed. It's just Agreed. usually they're not getting really big speakers fees to come like rally up a crowd and do a public debate with some famous atheist, right? Sure. That's the stuff I don't, I don't want to do. Right. But right. It's fascinating. Logos, apologetics -y, Mm -hmm. did god was god just a bad writer mm. like why, why did we need four <laughs> versions think about it what yeah. kinds of you know think about the the if not contradictions at least tensions emerge in these different recountings different yeah. stories of christ right we have yep. slightly different versions and sometimes they seem a little bit to pull against each other sure why in the world would a god who you know ostensibly if omniscience is to be believed is pretty mm. smart why yeah. do it this way? Exactly. And I think that what we have to realize is the Bible and the Gospels in particular invite us to recognize the relational dynamics by mm. which the truth. Remember, truth is not something Jesus came to say. Mm -hmm. It is what Jesus is. is. I am the truth. Je suis yep. la vérité, says Michel Henry. Oui. He writes his amazing book just on what does it mean to countenance this. Très bien, monsieur. Thinks really, really carefully about oui. what it would mean to understand Christ as truth in the bibliolatry of mm. so much of contemporary white evangelicalism. What mm -hmm. we find is, no, 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 no. Jesus is true if and only if Jesus is saying the stuff that we know mm. <laughs> the Bible really <laughs> Right. And it's it's yeah. mind-blowing to me. That is mind-blowing. We see four relational stories. Yeah, God cares we about perspective. Matthew's account and mm -hmm. Mark's account, right? Mm -hmm. And this is cool because it shows us that Jesus talk about truth is relative mm -hmm. Jesus, the same yesterday today and tomorrow and mm -hmm. yet was different to each of them depending on their perspective their yep. histories their needs their embodied requirements well so think about important oh it is and i think two things um i'm reminded of uh, tim keller wrote an excellent little book about the encounters with jesus and He's got a the the reminder in the story about um, Martha and Mary, and I think it's uh, the death yeah. of Lazarus and his Jesus's yeah. two very different reactions, uh, and then his yeah. bellowing like a beast. You know his his deep seated grief that the, the, I can't remember the Greek word, but it's very it's like a dying animal uh, yeah. sound. So it's like wow, Jesus really wept and really got in there with that. And his mm -hmm. two very different responses. He didn't give them the same response because he took hypothetically let's say an objective truth but but uh molded it to relative to each person yeah. and this is something i think bill craig yeah. has done a good job 
with making the distinction between absolute and relative on one hand and objective and subjective are they're not the same thing. So I think it's, it's important we kind of think in two planes is that it needs to be relative. God cares about perspective was my other point. And I think among other reasons uh, uh, that we can and go into. And if God didn't, yeah. we would be deists. We, right? Yeah, wow, like, good like, point. It, this is mm -hmm. important. If, if huh. Christian theism is a relational personalist religion, which mm -hmm. I think it is as its core, sure. then God must care about perspective. God mm -hmm. must speak in ways that we can understand. And the we is likely to be different in different times and spaces. That doesn't mean that God changes in God's yeah. essence, we'd say philosophically. Correct. But if we say, well, what is that essence? And right. I think this is, again, the revelation of Christ. Jesus is the presentational actuality that God is defined by relational love. Mm. Right. Kenosis is a revelation of God's essence of who God is. God is relational love. Now, yes. if God is relational love, why then would we go so far out of our way to strip the relation out and make sure that it's propositionally specific? Mm. Again, we, we professor philosophers, we can yeah. do it because we love that sure. kind of precision and we're yeah, doing we a do. kind of game. Yeah. Right. But that's not what we find usually. Oh in the relational story of God's love. I, I agree. And I think that's beautifully said. And I think, again, you know, we'll, we'll bring in a Tolkien reference here in the two towers, you know, uh, paraphrasation of a conversation Eomer has with uh, the, the three hunters, you know, Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn. And the, he, he hears, Eomer hears the word halfling and he, he starts yeah. talking about myths and legends. And uh, eventually in the conversation, Aragorn says, you know, you're talking about myths and legends, but the green grass under your feet is yeah. the stuff of myth. Yeah. This is a loose paraphrasation, but that's the gist of the conversation. And what I think this tells us is that we're so accustomed to thinking that if it's propositions, it's certain. And that we, we need 100% certainty. I think Paul Copan has also written great things about this. We don't, a lot of things, most things we know, in fact, are not 100% certain. I think it's a very valuable statement. Uh, and I know we have to move on, but there's that. And then there's this, we think you know, science and, and rationality and propositional statements is gonna make me feel secure and that I'm gonna know that I know and uh, like you said about Martin Luther earlier, that's it. I'm, I'm now immovable. And I just think that's, that's stating too much. And, well, and it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, th th this is speculative. So, yeah. so um, again, we philosophers tend to be very itchy about saying mm. things that we, you know, we, we can't defend all the way down. Of course. <laughs> My hunch is, I, I have a hunch that mm. part of the broad white evangelical suspicion about um, some of the COVID science and, and the, the strategies is actually grounded in the idea that because we've embraced or they've embraced a propositional calculus that requires certainty as the zero-sum game of rational domination, mm. the idea that science doesn't actually live up to what they think their faith does right mm. it's well no science like life is messy yeah yeah it turns mm. out that what we know changes in time and data affects how we make sense of things and mm -hmm. strategies that worked at one point don't work as well at another right so mm -hmm. the idea of saying oh i'm not wearing a mask because you know fauci changed his mind they were lying to us you're like mm. wow no yeah the, the this is the whole idea but that, that the johnson and johnson pause 
proves it's all a lie. No, that <laughs> proves that the process works. Yes, <laughs> that, exactly. That it's messy and we revise and mm -hmm. we rethink. And this is something really cool internal to, well, I'm not well said. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not a, a reformed thinker, but yeah. reformed epistemology, I think, gets this right. Mm. Where it talks about the idea that our grounding foundations are still revisable in light of life. That's right? a very good point. Storf clearly makes this case. And yeah. I think he's exactly right. And for what yeah. it's worth, again, sort of uh, deep in the philosophy theology, <laughs> weeds, this is why I'm an open theist, uh, right? Is okay. because I actually think God is so relational mm. that God allows the risk to be shared. Mm. That it's not simply risky because we don't have God's perspective. It's mm. risky because God loves us enough to take risks too. Wow. And and my buddy John Sanders in his book, The God Who Risks, I think mm -hmm. miraculously, um, beautifully presents the idea of if we think something like the free will defense is true, mm. hey, well, love requires risk, God desired love, et cetera, et cetera. Then why would we not expect the same of the divine? If God really does love us, Mm -hmm. Would God love us enough to actually make it possible that God's own desires would not come to fruition? Wow. Right? And yeah. for me, that is so not a challenge to divine sovereignty. Mm -hmm. It's a rejection of a crappy notion of sovereignty as power. Wow. Real huh. sovereignty is yeah. the ability to love despite the power that could, in fact, force. Yeah, and that's very profound. Right now. Right. And so that, no, anyway, that, that's my, no. my theological landing is because of some of that. No, I, I, I want to talk to you more about that. I think that will have to be the next interview because I've got a, a whole string of questions, um, yeah. you know, that, that I've got. So I'm going to start. I'm going to start. Yeah, we can rapid those. fire. We'll, we'll, we'll go yeah. through a, a speed round here. I, I apologize. Yeah. I, I know you didn't no, want to do as no, much no. theology as we've done. but Oh, this is great. This is exactly why I had you on. And, uh, and this is precisely what I wanted to talk about. Do you have a little bit more time? I can of just course. pick your brain. Okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'll, I'll so, speak shorter from now. No, no, no. You're you are saying what needs to be said <laughs> in the the length of time it needs to be said in. So some, I just some things... don't usually. Get, I will say I don't get usually get to speak to the yeah. type of audience that I I uh, know you have. Yeah. Good. Um, most of my audiences are very academic mm. or very progressive. Right. That tends to be the kind yeah. of work I do. I end up speaking to those audiences. Sure. Um, and I I think that one of the great uh, sacrifices of that mm -hmm. is that it doesn't invite um, the same kind of reflective transformative possibilities yeah sure. so it's quite an honor mm -hmm. to, to speak to your audience and i'm sure um the 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 hate mail directed towards me not toward <laughs> you I'm, I'm happy to to receive it so. no no that's that's quite fine you know what i i've, I've uh, not gotten any yet but i, I know it's <laughs> i know it's coming but we'll, we'll share the burden there you know, I think that's another topic I want to talk about too, about progressive Christianity and, and some of the things that I think are getting misrepresented. But again, that'll have to wait for next time. Yeah, um, I myself am not progressive, but I, I can appreciate a lot of uh, what you said today. I, I haven't really heard anything that I, you know, would say we do like a debate and I would really yeah. push back on. There are some things I'd want to know more about, but right. I'm sure we might have some disagreements here and there. But uh, nevertheless, That'll wait till and that's time. important, by it the way. Is. That that's right. the reason the non-negotiables are always negotiable. Yeah. It's yes. just that it may not. I, I once heard Linda Zagzebski is one of the freaking coolest thing I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> someone pushed her at a conference and said, "Linda, you know, you're you're unwilling to rethink Christianity. You're just so committed. You're a dogmatist." And her response was brilliant. She said, "Oh no, I'm willing. 
I just don't think you've got the time. <laughs> that is so baller because what she's wow. saying is, of course it's in play. Of course yeah. it's risky. Yeah. But don't think for a second that what it means to live into this hope looks like mm. the belief I have about, you know, how many flowers are on the bush outside my living room window. Like th these right. are different kinds of claims. Yes, so, they are. Anyway. No, no, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. So that'll be a next time. Uh, hopefully maybe uh, something later in the summer, we can do another Sounds talk great. if, if you've got some free time. Yeah, I'm excited. So for today, just because we've, we've talked so much about mythos and logos, let's just finish on uh, Kierkegaard. Um, for those of us, Always especially have. me, I uh, love, yeah. you know, I'm getting into Kierkegaard for the first time in my life. I didn't do a lot of modern philosophy in school. So that's probably mm -hmm. what it was. We all kind of have our specializations, but um, tell us about the time period where he grew up. Uh, obviously, uh, the Church of Denmark I mentioned earlier, so that'll kind of give part of that away. Um, and then, if you could get into uh, what is direct communication yep. that he writes about in his lectures and elsewhere, and indirect communication. Right. And then, uh, if if I can just load one more thing, you know, does indirect communication and myth overlap at all? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then maybe see where good, we are after that. Good yeah. Question. Okay, yeah. Cool. Thanks. So uh, here, here's the sort of you know, cliff note version of um, things that, that there are great resources on, on YouTube for people that want to get a longer account of this. Sure. So <laughs> Kierkegaard uh, is 1813 to 1855. Mm -hmm. um, he died at 42, which again, I, I mentioned earlier, he, he's younger than me. I'm 43. And wow. it was very, very freaky. So I became the president of the Soren Kierkegaard Society in the USA mm -hmm. um, at 42. Oh, wow. I, I lived that whole year like on pins and needles thinking, oh, my goodness, like th this symmetry is entirely uh, I, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. So on my 43rd birthday, I was thrilled that I had like dodged that uh, particular <laughs> that gauntlet. Oh, wow. So, um, dies at 42, <laughs> young man, yeah. in, uh, spends his whole life in, in Denmark. Mm -hmm. His big issue um, philosophically was, and he says this explicitly later in his, his life, is to think through what it means to become a Christian. Mm -hmm. And he describes his task as trying to bring Christianity back to Christendom. Mm. Now, why might he say it that way? It's because he was convinced that he lived in what he described as an age without passion. Again, notice mm. I keep hitting the pathos cannot be dropped, right? Yeah, It's the yeah. affective side. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by this was, we find ourselves too often thinking, and this was the case he thought in his uh, Danish Lutheran church at the time, mm. that church membership was a kind of um, salvific reality mm -hmm. by which uh, the objective case was now deployed in one's life and you're good. Mm. So it was a, as he put it, we think we can go further than faith. Well, I had faith when I was a kid. I got baptized. I'm good. Now mm. I'm pursuing real things. Now I'm moving on, right? Mm. Not because I've left Christianity, but because yeah. I'm already a Christian now. And, and it's this moving somewhere else, he says. Wow. Yeah. And he says, well, but where do they think they're going, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like we said earlier, when you're trying to be an objectivist who has some sort of God's eye view on reality, you know, hmm. Mm. Well, who's looking then through that perspective? It ain't mm -hmm. me, right? Mm -mm. So Kierkegaard suggests that what it means to think about existence is the core issue to think about Christian existence. This mm. is where his existentialism emerges. 
Yes. He, he doesn't think that Christian existence is somehow um, this standalone topic. He mm -hmm. thinks it's a modification of what it means to be invested, living out the human condition. Mm -hmm. So his work engages all kinds of topics like anxiety and dread and fear and risk and love and despair. I mean, it, it, it's dripping with mm. the stuff of good movies, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the thing Kierkegaard realized early on was, well, <laughs> there are ultimately, he thought, three different modes or ways that one can fundamentally orient oneself in living. And he describes these as aesthetic, ethical, or religious. Mm -hmm. And he says the aesthetic mode is in the mode of immediacy. It's mm -hmm. where, um, you know, think about the idea of you want the new cell phone, you get the new cell phone, you get a sense of satisfaction, you want sure. the complicated coffee drink and you order it with, you know, more technical rhetoric than I will ever deploy in any of my books. And you get the complicated coffee drink and you are given this amazing sense of self. Uh -huh. The problem is you drink your coffee drink and you're like, oh, crap, who am I now? Yeah. <laughs> right. I got to go order more coffee or I'm going to go exactly. get some brie or something. <laughs> you know, and if you're super hipster, you can buy like really crappy beer, but claim that it's even better than the best beer because you're aware of it or something. Pre preach so it. <laughs> all of this move, right, is this aesthetic uh, mode of existence. And he yeah. says that eventually this leads to despair because everything you're doing is denying mm. a kind of self, right? You're not living into yourself. You're trying to find yourself somewhere. Mm. And so he says, we move into the ethical mode. And importantly, these aren't like sequential. It's just right. that these are different ways at different times that we can live in life. Mm -hmm. Ethical mode, instead of immediacy, it's mediated. Mm. This is where I would suggest the vast majority of the broadly conservative Christians. And when I say that, I don't mean conservative in a political sense. No. Because it's entirely possible to be very... Um, compellingly deep and nuanced and complicated theologically and still hold conservative social values, right? Sure, yeah. But in broad conservative, again, broadly white evangelical sorts of ways, which is the target of a lot of, um, you know, my own Kierkegaardian critique, <laughs> what we see is an ethical mode of existence. This mm -hmm. is where some external uh, modification or standard is brought to bear to narrate what matters in the world. Mm -hmm. So, Think ethics. We have, you know, the, the number of books written against postmodernism because we need moral truth, right? Absolute right and wrong. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay. But notice your conception of right and wrong, your conception of objective truth has now become the barrier to something like relational existence because you've become not much more than the social role you play. Think mm. about family value narratives, mm -hmm. right? Think about traditional gender role narratives. All mm. of these things that I would push back on very strongly politically mm. are rooted in a very helpfully Kierkegaardian framed account, which is mm. we don't become selves. We become father. We become mother. We become sister. We become man, woman. We become mm. citizen. We, bec right? we become these mm because we've narrated selfhood according to some uh, uh, claimed to be objective standard. Right. right. I follow you. Problem is also despair. Why? Mm. Because you're never you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah. again, 
you are just the instantiation of some objective code. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he says religious life, and this is where we get the phrase leap of faith, though he mm. never uses that phrase, interestingly enough. In- interesting. No, I didn't know yeah, that. It's, it's not in his uh, authorship. He talks about a mighty trampoline leap, but he <laughs> never uses the phrase leap of faith okay. because, and here's why, moving from any of these modes to any of the other modes is a leap of faith. Sure. <laughs> right? yeah. They are all moves that cannot be justified by argument but Mm. have to be lived into because of trust and hope. Makes sense. Right? Because the categories you need to justify moving to ethics are only available once you're ethical. Exactly. Right? The categories of aesthetics to motivate why you want to live that way, Mm. only available once you're already in it. Right? Sure. So the moves are all leaps. That makes perfect sense. But religion is for him this ability to recognize that your singularity, your selfhood is now the task by which we understand the importance of things like objective standards, Mm -hmm. that we now understand the value of immediate desire and relationships to externals. Mm -hmm. So it's a recognition of that relational intimacy, Mm -hmm. which only happens in the religious for Kierkegaard. And this sure. is a really cool claim because aesthetics and ethics lose selfhood because they lose real relationship of selves to each other. Mm. And so how do we then understand true selfhood for Kierkegaard? Here, again, there's a lot more steps, but he basically yeah, says, in the religious, <laughs> we stand before God. And when we stand before God, we are able then to receive ourselves as the task of becoming. Mm. Instead of, again, I mm. am a Christian, right. I now receive myself in relational engagement with the divine as the mm. task of becoming one insofar as I live daily toward the love to which God calls me. Can I interject here? I think that's a very important idea because... Um, people often give their conversion stories. And, and I remember several groups that I was a part of at UCF and USF in my school journey, you know, and even just recently at a, a club on campus, you know, tell us your story, how you came to faith. Mm-hmm. And there's this expectation that being a, becoming a Christian is a one-time yeah. singular event. And I think that's, of course, there's much more he's alluding to, but mm-hmm. that's part of it is that we're in relation to standing before God, we're, we're receiving from him this task of dying every day and becoming a Christian is an ongoing process and that we have to renew. You mentioned uh, Jamie Smith earlier, kind of alluding to this. Um, I think I've uh, just picked up his book on Augustine. I think that was him that wrote that on the road with Augustine. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. So I I think that's a, that's a very important idea because there's almost like this uh, peer pressure. I've noticed in some circles, not all, please don't misunderstand me folks that, you know, I'm not saying that these conversion stories aren't authentic, Right, right, I remember right. reading, I think I, some evangelical had written something about, you know, they heard a story about a woman who, you know, was walking along the way and a Bible dropped out of a second story mm-hmm. window mm-hmm. and it opened up on a passage in mm-hmm. Romans five and they became a Christian. And I, I'm, I want to believe this, but sometimes mm-hmm. I'm skeptical that it's more the ooh, ooh and ah effect of the story that this was a one-time event. My life's changed and I don't <laughs> yeah. know, how, I don't have to renew the contract that misses yeah. the whole point of what a covenant is in ancient Israelite society, let alone any other society that understands what a contract is and an ongoing expectation. So 
I, well, I hear you about on this, that. right? Yeah. The the you know the famous conversion story, you know the <clears throat> Emmaus roads or Damascus roads or whatever. The sure. only reason those stories matter to us mm. is because of the life then that the person who was transformed then went on to live. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The the idea of Kierkegaard's work, and this is where the direct and indirect happens. Yes. Thank is, you. We, we have to find a way to recognize that the relational commitments are actually in play in all the stages. It's just that the relational identity is lost in two of the three. And mm -hmm. what that means is I'm in relation when I'm aesthetic. Mm -hmm. It's just I'm in relation to objects that can be used, right? right? I'm yeah. in relation to others as usable objects as well, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Far too often... You know, the, the way in which we narrate things like, you know, bodies, we talk about them as, you know, these things that we're going to, you know, shuff off and get rid of. And it actually leads to a deeply, in my opinion, immoral, I'd say sinful ableism within mm -hmm. the church Gnosticism. because we yeah. are aesthetic relative to embodiment. Right? Sure. Yeah. Ethically. Well, yeah. what do we, we relate to others as opportunities for moral self-righteousness mm. right? mm -hmm. for moral judgment. Yeah. We aren't relationally invested in ways that are grounded in the rupturing humility of a canonic Christ. Mm. That's Kierkegaard's Christianity. Yeah. So one of uh. the things that I think is so cool here is Kierkegaard realizes, well, I can't just write the same book <laughs> to try to describe these three things sure. because from what perspective in what relation in what frame of reference would i as author be writing mm. well shoot he says if i'm going to describe what it looks like to become a christian that would assume that i've already become one but i'm not already become a christian i'm trying huh. so he has to invent brilliant pseudonyms yes 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 to be Climacticus. able to talk about the ideality of christian life because yes. he's saying i don't have it figured out i'm on right. my way uh -huh. i have to invent a pseudonym to talk about ethical existence because <laughs> i recognize that the only way to present this is for somebody to present it as the obvious truth right because i'm trying to become a christian i can't present it that way so mm. he invents judge william and, and figures to identify that well midwifery yeah yeah I have to present aesthetics as obviously the best game in town, right? Yeah, yeah. So what we get is Kierkegaard uses pseudonyms as a way of trying to invite others to what he'll say, untie a dialectical knot, mm. right? So indirect communication for him is a dialectical knot, he says, presented to them that requires them to be the author of the text in a very real way wow. because he as author is now dropping out to let these other voices show up so he's not you know johannes the seducer or judge william or anti-climacus right he is inviting the reader to say do i say yes to the judge do mm. I say yes with Johannes? Do I find Johannes to be leaving me cold? Well, why? What is it about my life that doesn't resonate here? That dialectical knot is then untied for oneself mm -hmm. so that we, he, he gives the example of uh, dropping breadcrumbs and the birds coming down and picking them up and flying off. He says, I don't know where they then go. Huh. Like, 
he frees us up as readers oh, wow. to take the books as invitations not to understanding, but right. to transformed living. And, and that's where direct yeah. communication is yes. when he writes under his own name. Right, right. right. He yep. signs the stuff. <laughs> and you had asked me earlier about what's the first book I'd recommend of Kierkegaard. Yeah, yeah. The irony is everybody recommends his pseudonymous stuff, and I don't. Okay. Uh, yeah. Fear and Trembling is the famous one everybody recommends. <clears throat> My recommendation is always to go pick up Kierkegaard's discourses. Okay. Um, and the reason that I think this is worth doing is these are basically little sermons, to be honest. Mm. It's where he speaks confessionally. He speaks under his own name. And the reason I think these are good places to start is because then you can get a sense of what is it Kierkegaard as person, mm. as he calls it, a, a you know, fragile existential single individual. Like, wh what is it that that guy who was struggling with his own claims and his own life and his own failures. I mean, he had a horribly messy uh, engagement breakup with a girl. Oh, he really? Had, uh, oh, it, it haunted him his whole life. Oh, that's terrible. He had, um, absolute horrible uh, physical realities. He got made fun of in the local newspapers because he had a hunchback. Oh, um, they wow. called him Kierkegaard the Cripple. He had a really messy relationship with his father. I mean, his whole relationship to the world is one that was deeply, deeply fallible, finite, yeah. fragile, and broken. Wow. And so what he then does is he concocts this magisterial authorship, but mm. never to speak from on high like someone sure. like Hegel might. Mm. Again, <laughs> think the on top of the mountain lecturing rather than mm. on the side of the road being willing to pick up the cross, right? Kierkegaard's invitation is in the discourses, in these little sermons where he's writing with his own name. And my favorite of these, which is not, people should go pick this one up first, but it's just my favorite, yeah. is one called um, <laughs> For Self-Examination and Judge for Yourself. Hmm. I okay. love those stories. Um, they're these little sermons, but they're so cool because what you see is Kierkegaard doing his best to live okay and he's doing his best to live in light of a god who he claims lived mm. right what does it mean to live in light of the fact that god lived that that is for him the question of christian existence so if we start there mm -hmm. then we can make sense of ah <laughs> like i've heard people say i read either or by kierkegaard that guy's a misogynist you're like, well, he did have problematic at some point, you know, notions of gender identity. But mm. what you read was precisely the voice of a seducer who intentionally seeks out to uh. view women as objects in order to bring them to the point of love so that they can break up with him and he can get out unscathed. Like, you, huh. that's not Kierkegaard. Yeah, that, that's the seducer. Right. Wow. Or uh, I read Kierkegaard. You know, he's horrible. He's an ethical nihilist. Say something oh, like, wow. well, because you read Fear and Trembling where uh -huh. what he's trying to do is critique a particular notion of ethics. Exactly. But it's under the name of Johannes de Salentio, John of Silence. And huh. it starts with a little metaphor, that a parable, that basically says, hey, most people won't get this. Like, you know, and we scholars, there's oh, at ironic. least five different radically incompatible readings of Fear and Trembling among Kierkegaard scholars. No kidding. 
And we are absolutely unagreed. <laughs> like, <laughs> because we all think, nah, here's the secret message. Here's what's yeah. really going on. Here's what it really says. Yeah. So how yeah. does this play yeah. out? I think indirect communication, it's not that indirect communication is mythos and direct communication is logos. Mm -hmm. I think it's indirect and direct are two different modes of finding um, literary form mm -hmm. for the combination of living mythos and logos and pathos at all times. Well, that makes so much better sense. Indirect communication is. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would so say. I, I hope that makes sense. No, that makes plenty of sense. I, I would say that uh, it's often overlooked that, you know, the word mythological, right? That, mythos in, in, involves logos. And so you have this uh, truly mythological way of speaking in indirect communication would, would combine both. Yep. Um, and I think, uh, again, that, that speaks to the whole embodied person. Um, I always see it as a supreme way of, of speaking. However, I do want to point out that I don't think they're pitted against each other because direct communication, yep. it seems to me, is good for somebody who already knows the, the object uh, of, or the subject matter that you're speaking of and might just need a reminder. Um, well, and also maybe yeah. think about audience, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if I am speaking to professional philosophers, mm. um, indirect communication is unlikely to get me the CV line that allows me to, <laughs> you know, hold a view that like we, we right. have to do certain things because of where we find ourselves. Kierkegaard exactly. never held a job, you know, really? Oh walks away from the only job he ever had, right? No, There's a kidding. reason he can write Zuspect Zarathustra. It's because he wasn't actually going up for tenure review committees, mm -hmm. you know? So there's no reason to think that there's a better and worse way. There's mm -hmm. a, again, all truth is relative. There's mm -hmm. a way of trying to truth tell mm -hmm. by recognizing who am I speaking to? What am I trying to convey? And what am I trying to bring about in the reader? Mm -hmm. And so I do think indirect communication of whatever, whether pseudonymously or not, sure. is really effective if what you're trying to do is invite the reader to some sort of transformation. Yes. Direct communication, I think, is really effective if you're trying to invite the reader to consider a possible case. Right. Knowledge right. more. Yeah. yeah then, then this comes into uh, to Kierkegaard's concept of capability is that he's trying to communicate yeah. capabilities, that existential lived experience of transformation of a person's life. It really comes through the means of indirect communication, whereas direct communication uh, isn't. It's more interested in knowledge and kind of increasing knowledge or reminding one of what already, you know, or, is well maybe known. Li living, living purposively into where yeah. one has decided to be right yeah yeah um you know the the sermons and the discourses you know it's it's fascinating um i mean again and he makes very clear they're not sermons they're you know because he doesn't have the authority of the theologian you know mm -hmm. lest lest any of the kierkegaard world uh, send me emails how dare you they're, they're <laughs> sermon-like uh yeah yeah but but he he says you know, I'm not a theologian in, in a strong sense. I don't claim the authority of a prophet. I'm not a pastor, though his whole life, all he wanted to be was a country parson married and having some kids and you know, living in the country, right? Oh. And he never got to do it. He dies yeah. young. He dies basically bankrupt. Um, oh, that's he, terrible. You know, was had a very rough life. And yet, 
what he presents to us is invitations to continue living on purpose, even once we are now committed to becoming a Christian, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what these discourses are for. He says that they are for upbuilding. And why would you need to be upbuilt? Because you aren't already there, (laughs) right? Exactly. (laughs) You're still, and, and Jesus says this, you know, we are always on the way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so being on the way, you know, to bring this full circle is very different than the, you know, domination zero sum game from on top of the mountain. Sure. Yeah. It is a um, walking with along still waters sometimes, mm-hmm. but also through the valley of the shadow of death at other times and mm-hmm. recognizing that both of those times are human. Yeah. Right. Yep. And realizing that if somebody else is on a different mountaintop, that doesn't mean that's where you need to be. Mm-hmm. That's so right. Well being said. Being able to take seriously the messiness of the human condition mm. and the way that faith is not weak knowledge that we want to convert to certainty. Mm. Faith is risk with direction. Standing where I stand because I'm on the way toward what I hope is true. I love that. And for me, yeah. that's that's the Christian life. Yeah. Wow. Beautifully said. Uh, I've uh, I've kept you long enough. Um, I, I I could keep going, but this is this is great. I, I got to touch on all the subjects I wanted to ask you about, uh, Doctor Simmons. Thank you so much for coming on oh, Mythic Mission know. this time. Next time we'll pick your brain about uh, who knows what next. So we'll uh, yeah. be in touch to get you on. Well, well, I I appreciate you so yeah. much, and I should say I rarely do as confessional a uh, interview as this. Oh, um, thank you. And there are good reasons for this, because mm-hmm. I think that um, it is important for professional philosophers to take seriously that their Christian commitments aren't just what they then do as philosophers, mm-hmm. right? As well a said. philosopher, my Christian commitments are never disengaged, mm-hmm. but they are not some sort of tacit set of assumptions from which I am able to operate. I disagree mm-hmm. again with the reformed crowd on this. Mm-hmm. And instead, I think, you know, we can wear different hats at different times. And, Absolutely. you know, sometimes a, a, a beanie works better and other times the ball cap. And so it's put on the confessional uh, beanie. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. We're, we got some. I, I think we caught most of that. I'm so sorry there was some static again, but uh, that was oh, that so was well sorry. said. No, no, it's okay. It happens. Um, I'm glad it didn't happen when you were uh, really, really into the uh, the material. But that was that was well said. You know, we need to uh, to remember that we wear different hats, and I think it's important to kind of come down to you know to engage in uh, a kind of confessional conversation. So thank you so much for for being vulnerable and open and sharing all your knowledge with us. My pleasure. I, and if anybody wants to reach out, my yeah. email. Just Aaron.Simmons at Furman.edu. Thank um, you. They can also check out my YouTube uh, mm-hmm. channel where I do, oh. uh, I, I try to do daily videos. They've gotten a little bit less <laughs> than that uh, during the spring semester. Yeah. But it's simply called Philosophy for Where We Find Ourselves. Oh, um, cool. A little five minute uh, philosophy for life sort of videos. And um, nice. also some longer form interviews with philosophers uh, there that are called uh, Two Philosophers, One Conversation. And so if oh. anybody. <laughs> reach out. I'd love to be in touch and, and, um, you know, they can reach me in either of those places. Um, I was just about to ask you that. Would you mind if I posted that on the episode description for today? Uh, absolutely. please. And last but not least, thank you for all that. I've got your WordPress as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to subscribe to your YouTube as well. I've got mythic mission on YouTube as well. Um, let me say as well, one more time, there's, uh, 
Uh, it's been a long day already. So um, one last question was about your books. Any uh, yeah. books you want to recommend? Where can we find out more about what you've written? Um, yeah. So um, I would say that my um, website, which I need to revise and make fancier, um, but it's just yeah, jaronsimmons.wordpress.com. Mm -hmm. um, there I've got lots of writings that are probably of interest to this audience. So Perfect. a little bit more confessional stuff. Um, I do a lot of public speaking for corporations and businesses. That stuff is there. Um, recently Excellent. posted a, a essay uh, in light of the passing of the rapper DMX about oh. deconstructive subjectivity and DMX that's up there on the website. No kidding. So that's not a bad place. Um, all my podcasts and interviews and things like that are linked from there. So that's a good kind of uh, landing pad. My Perfect. book, um, th those are trickier. And, and I hate to say that because most of my books are you know, written by a scholar to scholars. Mm -hmm. So um, they are listed. Uh, most of them, I need to update it, are there on the website, um, okay. Amazon and stuff. But I, I, I hesitate to ever recommend any of my books to okay. people um, because I feel that they will be woefully disappointed as I launch into technical debates about, <laughs> you know, epistemic justification theory and stuff. Yeah. But, um, well, I, I might, I might have to partake a little bit, but okay, that's good. <laughs> Honest. Uh, I'll post the website so people can find those uh, things that you're up to and also your publications if they want to have them. Uh, love the idea of the uh, philosophy where, where we're at. That's great. And I will be sending you the links for today's show uh, to both YouTube and the podcast so you can put them on your site if, you, if you'd like to. Sounds great. I will absolutely do it. It's been my absolute pleasure to all the audience. Thank you for your time. Uh, let, let's find ways, even in disagreement sometimes, find mm -hmm. ways to show neighbor love and Christian charity as we think well together. Amen. Thanks again.